The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Katie, I'm not sure if you're aware of my you know, market-moving call here, but I just kind of feel like all the bad news is kind of in the market. I, I know rates are going up. That's in the market. Mm-hmm. Earnings are coming down. That's kind of in the market. So... Don't I just buy stocks and buy bonds and stuff like that now? So, that, I you mean, could sit in cash. You could sit in cash, I guess. Now I'm getting, you know, I'm on two year. I'm getting four point four nine percent on my two year. So who knows? Phil Taze, he's the CEO of Taze Asset Management. Uh, he has to do this for a living. They got a couple, uh, a bill under management. Phil, what are you doing in this marketplace? Because I know you and your team, you had been really long cash for a while. Um, what are you doing these days? Yeah, so we were almost 90% cash for the majority of this year. You can do that? We can. In wow. fact, uh, we, we manage funds and ETFs that are able to go fully defensive. Okay. So in cash or be fully hedged with options. Uh, but we were driven partially back into the market into high yield bonds last week, and that represents about 50% of our business. Uh, but, you know, I don't. I wouldn't say that we're optimistic, but I think that there's a possibility that we could continue to move higher. I mean, you said go ahead and just put money in stocks and bonds. I feel like there's such a recency bias towards declines being very short term, Mm -hmm. like we saw in the pandemic, that we're all just expecting this to be over. But I kind of doubt that it is. And I think maybe looking at the internet bubble burst where it happened 2000, 2001, 2002, took more like two and a half years is the kind of market that we're gonna be looking forward to. I want to talk about junk bonds. That's really interesting. We I, call them high yield bonds. Oh, I'm, okay. so, I'm sorry. I'm, let me use their government name. Uh, so those high yield bond funds. I track ETFs. Uh, that's my day job here at Bloomberg News. Inflows into high yield debt ETFs have been on fire. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Tell us a little more about that flip. What triggered it to go out of cash into junk debt? I said it. Well, so it could be it could be managers like us. Uh, certainly, we came in with around seven hundred million dollars last week. Uh, but what, if you look at high yield bonds, you put seven hundred million dollars to work last week. Yes, that's real money, Katie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. write that down. Could you yeah. do that? So. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't quite. I, like, how did you? T- how did you? Just tell us how, like, how a manager does that. So it, you know, the market is so liquid uh, for places like high yield bonds, and and certainly, you know, stocks. If you look at the major blend indices. So it's not a problem to come into the market and not really move it uh, and take that type of a position. Okay. But it could be traders like us because if you look at the history of high yield bonds, uh, they tend to not move that much per day. On average, they move about uh, maybe 20 basis points. So you don't get whipsawed if you have to come in and out. You know, We're driven by trend following algorithms. So it's possible that we came in last week and we could be out again this week. But look, there's a potential here with yields at around 9.5%. Uh, if markets move up this fourth quarter, and we get that kind of yield plus a little bit of appreciation, that could be a decent trade, I think. All right, just, just kind of for giggles here, Elon Musk is refinancing his Twitter debt today. 
Do you buy any of, any of his new debt coming into the market? Would you be interested in an Elon Musk debt package for Twitter, knowing I, what you know about Twitter? I would love to answer that question <laughs> with authority <laughs> and with knowledge, but I don't okay, have it. Right. Unfortunately, <laughs> when we buy high-yield bonds, we're buying gen just looking at indices. Indices, and we're trying right. to invest are, broadly are you concerned across the market? About, what, I, I guess when you're buying high-yield, you have to have a call on a recession, how deep how long it will be. Are you concerned about that as you go into some higher yielding paper? Yeah, so when we come in, because we follow trends and they could move lower and have us out again this week, we're not okay. so worried okay. about that. Uh, what we like, though, is positions that come in after we've had a decline like we've had of around 15% in high-yield bonds. So that potentially produces opportunity. Look back to the financial crisis. There we saw high-yield bonds move around down around 25%. In 08, the following year they advanced 50%. So the opportunity is there. We just don't know if it's right now or maybe sometime in 2023 or later. So, given that you are trend following, how often do you make these sort of big allocation shifts that you just made from cash into high yield, for example? Yeah. So, so we manage six funds and two ETFs, and they and they they make up equities and high yield bonds. On average, across our whole platform, we're buying or and selling maybe making two to three round turns per year so not a lot it's some people refer to it as turtle trading so we're not we're not speculating and trying to make it take advantage of just any one day move we're really trying to take advantage of moves that, that last over several months but is, that sounds like trying to market time which i've thought is a tough business yeah so it's really tough business until you see the market move down 50 percent and you don't participate that's what you really want to do but market timing is an interesting phrase and it refers typically to people that are out there trying to predict what's going to happen in the markets which we don't do and we don't recommend uh it, historically however though if you are able to just follow trends and be out in the early phase of declines before they move down significantly and then just ride out and be in cash as we have been a lot this year and then attempt to come in in the very early stage of advances, it can be very favorable. Look, e even if you don't return what the markets return, if your investors yep. are participating in that big move lower, that can be a huge benefit to them. All right, great stuff. Yeah. Uh, really appreciate getting your points of view. It's a different point of view, and we appreciate hearing that. Phil Taze, he's the CEO of Taze Asset Management. Uh, he joins us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, and you always appreciate that. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We're at the time of the year where university endowments are reporting the returns uh, on their endowments for the trailing 12 months ended June of this year. And if you think back a year ago, they were talking 50, 55% positive returns, just extraordinary numbers. But as we all know, 2022 has been the other side of that coin. We got equity markets down 25%, fixed income markets down low to mid teens. So you'd expect to see some returns like that, but we're not. We're seeing kind of flat, minus two, minus four, minus five. What's going on here? Let's check in with Gwabrov Patankar. He covers all that stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us here in a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio because he does not phone it, and he comes in uh, in line. Gwabrov, here, here's my concern, or here's my guess. They're not marking their private equity investments to market. Is that the case? 
that's a that's a very very good very very good and a very well informed guess but i think there's much more to it so if you just peel the onion a little bit uh, all these university pension plans have done extremely well over the years as we all know they followed the yale model and really took on a liquid risk which conceptually is not such a bad thing if your liabilities are are over the long term you should be investing over the long term having said that uh, a lot of the private managers the mark to markets uh, in this particular situation is very subjective it's about when your auditor comes in and and literally goes through asset by asset there's a one or two or three or even a four quarter delay from time to time there's also inconsistencies between how different managers mark the same investment for different investors based on different mandates or how different managers mark the same investment in different investors portfolio so it's extremely complex i think we are just at the beginning of these marks beginning to manifest themselves i think the expectation for a lot of managers would have been to just wait it out and over a period of time the markets might come back and they don't really ever have to mark but as we all know that is not going to happen well, I'm emailing your note literally as we speak down to my good buddy, Neil Triplett at the Duke University Management Committee. So let's get his thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> well, to that point, I mean, is there a period in time where they do have to come out with their mark-to-market returns just and say what the raw number is there? Katie, that's a great question. And I think this time the canary is going to come out of the coal mine when it comes to the smaller pension plans, smaller U.S. public pension plans. As you know, the, the good old state pension plans, there's a lot of scrutiny. There's a lot of both the political scrutiny as, an, as, as well as the investment committee scrutiny. Uh, and there's zero incentive to really extend and pretend. So I think some of the same managers that have also been recipients of capital from state plans are going to have to be forced to mark their books down. I think, yes, to answer your question, year-end would be a very interesting time when auditors, uh, some of the largest auditors in the world, are going to really have to come to the table and think about these private assets in a very, very objective fashion. And I think there could be significant marks. I think some of the endowment CEOs, including Nard Narvikar, have been on record saying that there's a bunch of turbulence that lies ahead. And so I do expect that the year-end is perhaps a good time, uh, or early next year is when we start seeing these things manifesting. Gaurav, I'm looking at your research note here, and, and you note that Yale, which is kind of the leader in university endowment investment in terms of you know, kind of really thinking outside the box, maybe becoming very aggressive as opposed to the traditional 60-40 equity bond portfolio, they've got upwards of 40% in privates or alternatives. Wow, I didn't know it was that high, but I guess that's the way they're doing it here. Look, that's how you look for yield in what had been a zero interest rate environment. Look, the Yale model has been what it has been. It's been very successful and the gold standard for a lot of other smaller endowments uh, and many others, in fact, even in the pension world to follow. Having said that, that 43 number, a 43% number might actually even be a much lower number than what it could be because, as you know, over the last three to six months, there's a lot of managers that have come back to the allocators for re-upping, come back to the allocators for incremental capital calls and things of that nature. So actually that number, if one were to speculate, could be much north of the 43% uh, the as well. Now that is a very, very large equity risk that, that Yale uh, has in the book. And traditionally endowments are supposed to have a much higher equity risk, but again, if you add liquidity, uh, marks that have not been taken, and the capital commitment calls coming in, this becomes a pretty significant risk. So a significant risk, I mean, how worried are you? How worried should we be about that? Because all I hear right now when it comes to the treasury market, the public equity market, liquidity is hard to come by when it matters. I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but we've been hearing about liquidity risks all year long. Now we're talking about 
e-liquid markets, actually liquid markets, how concerned are you? No, I'm uh, reasonably concerned. I mean, having said that, endowments are not, I'm not saying there is going to be a run on endowments or endowments are going out of business. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is there is going to be a significant cause for concern because these endowments are sometimes one of the bigger hands that feeds the operating budgets of universities. So when you think of cash flows, when you think of matching cash flows, uh, I think that there are significant problems already based on some of the anecdotal conversations we have had with managers that are lower in duration that the endowments want to fund, but they don't have the liquidity to fund those assets. Now, how are they going to get that liquidity? Is by secondering out some of their private exposure. Why are they not secondering out that exposure at any good speed is because they're not getting the marks that they want. And why are they not getting the marks? Because there is no buyer for this. And there's no buyer because the next set of buyers were public pensions, and they're not going to buy it at, at the price uh, at the, where the endowments want to sell. All right. Our good friends uh, up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Harvard, they've stepped up their investments in hedge funds. What's up with that? Yeah. That's a great question. Harvard, for the longest period of time, while it's the largest endowment, has kind of been a laggard when it comes to performance. But over the last three to four years, Harvard has really taken a slightly different stance versus other endowments based on uh, whatever little public information we have. And what they have tried to do is pivot more around reducing the duration of the alternatives portfolio. And I think um, the CEO, Narvaker, uh, and Rick Slocum, the CIO, have been on record to talk about that. And I think uh, it makes a lot of sense in these kinds of turbulent markets where you're collecting some rent uh, and reducing the duration of the alternatives portfolio while managing through. And not that Harvard does not have illiquid private equity exposure where the capital calls may be coming, but they're able to manage through a little bit better than some of the other endowments like Washington or Yale or Princeton, which might have very, very uh, high degree of capital calls and more liquidity, illiquidity. And we only have about a minute left, but you also write that endowments have outperformed public pension funds by about 170 basis points over the past 10 years. You say that could converge. What's behind that call? Look, that is a very uh, bold call to make, Katie, but there are a couple of reasons why I feel strongly about this. Endowments have always been the cool kids in the block. <laughs> Public pensions, not, not so much. Now, what is really going to fundamentally change? You know what? Because they were not as cool, they never really got up the liquidity spectrum. What they have is out there in the open domain. It's tested every three months. There are politicians, investors, um, citizens scrutinizing it. And they were a little bit behind the curve, and that's going to come back to their rescue. And they're actually going to be in a unique situation where they could actually deploy to some of these secondaries or distressed funds at a time which is very, very interesting to be deploying capital in the liquid markets. All right, so, Gaurav. Some good stuff there, as always. Gaurav Patankar, head of alternative investments and manager research at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's got a really good note out uh, that's getting the attention of a lot of folks out there in the pension fund business and the endowment business. Uh, talking about some of those returns, and again, some just some extraordinary returns over the last couple of years from some of these university endowments, and of course, they were blowing their own horn, but you might be paying for that here in some of these results uh, being reported recently. Katie, we got uh, WTI crude oil, $87 a, bar you know, a barrel here. It seems like it's kind of settled into that kind of range, but I want to talk about the global supply and demand of oil, and we've for that, we talked to Fernando Valle. He's a senior analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been covering this energy business for like decades. And Katie, he says he knows four languages. English, eh, that's debatable. Portuguese, well, he is from Brazil, so we'll give him that. Spanish, it's basically the same thing as Portuguese, so you give him that. <laughs> German, I, I'm not giving him credit for that. I need to see him like in a conversation with Matt Miller to give him credit for That's German. That's true, the ultimate test. Exactly. Fernando, uh, we'll give you credit for knowing the uh, oil business. 
Um, what's the call here? I, I know you guys at Bloomberg Intelligence, you have your demand models, your supply models. This is a commodity after all, and it's supply and demand. What are your models telling you now about where crude may be going? Well, hi, Paul, and uh, first, guten Morgen und schönen Montag für uns uh, heute. Ooh, that, that uh, so, wow, schooling yes. Paul Sweeney. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, the first thing is that the, the the market is as uncertain as you are, and if you look at the the positions, the derivatives positions, uh, they show a lot of uh, divergence. Uh, we are at, near the highs on the long positions for Brent and for distillates, but when you put a a a, a, a uh, call. Uh, put call options were actually towards the lower half of the, the the percentiles because the market is is unsure of what is going to be the strongest hold will it be the lack of supply that we've talked about uh, uh over time or the economic pressures that we're starting to see uh emerge in in western europe and now with china in the lockdowns and we think for the remainder of 2022 those economic pressures are just too much uh, for the supply to really make a, uh, inroads. But as we go through and we look at the, the history of uh, how recessions and even depressions have impacted oil demand, uh, they tend to be short-lived impacts on consumption because ultimately energy is what gets us out of the economic slowdown. So demand tends to recover relatively quickly. And that's when we think that the supply gap will really emerge. And so, I mean, putting that into some numbers, if I see, uh, you know, WTI at about $87 right now, to Paul's point, feels like we've been hanging around there for a while, just bumping below 90. I mean, wh where's the floor? Where's the ceiling? Well, I think with WTI, there is a, a potential that uh, as we end November and the Strategic Petroleum Reserve uh, releases, uh, we're going to get a little bit of a catch up to Brent. Um, but then the two uh, benchmarks may may drop a little bit further. And, you know, they never fall linearly. Uh, so could we see 70 is, is probably an acceptable range, but it could uh, go to 50, depending on how bad the economic news are, and especially if we see something uh, uh, of a renewed lockdown in China or um, more austerity in, in Western Europe. Um, but then the ceiling, I mean, I think for now, we're probably going to be capped at 100 for the remainder of the year, even if we have positive news uh, on the economic front. Um, but then when we look at the long term, you know, the sky is the limit. When you look at diesel today, we, we near $200 a barrel for diesel. Mm. So if you put that into context, that would be uh, with typical margins, that would be 150 to $170 Brent. Hey, Fernando, we we woke up this morning to uh, what looks like a, a change in leadership in Brazil. I pull up the shares of Petrobras, uh, and they're down 5% today. Give us your view of how the global energy market is looking at Brazil with potentially uh, a new leader. Yeah, well, it's the old leader. Uh, yeah, it's exactly. Lula, uh, and we, we've known what he's done uh, in the past, and there are two fears, really. One is that he slows down exploration. Uh, something they did. Brazil made the largest discoveries in the world uh, in over 30 years uh, during his first term, uh, but they were slow to develop it. And and then Petrobras 
became the most indebted oil company in the world during his uh, terms and his pre uh, his successor Dilma Rousseff. And the fear is he's talked about building refineries again, and we have a note out that we talk about that because. Under his terms, uh, Petrobras was supposed to build five refineries. They spent uh, nearly $40 billion on those five refineries, but only half of them, half of one was completed. Uh, so they were supposed to build nearly a million barrels of, a day of refining capacity. And to, to this date, we only have about 115,000 barrels a day. So that's the fears that the, he uh, returns to those uh, days of overspending and not returning capital to shareholders. So does that is that I mean does that spell bad news potentially for uh, Latin American oil companies uh, broadly beyond just the biggest? Well, I think they they have been following their own uh, paths down. Uh, they have governments that aren't necessarily market friendly. You can see Ecopetrol with Gustavo Petro in Colombia. Uh, he's talked about uh, subsidizing fuel prices directly from Ecopetrol, which has its own negative impacts. Uh, YPF obviously hamstrung by the massive rampant inflation in Argentina. Uh, they continue to grow, but their uh, profitability and cash flow has lagged peers significantly. So uh, they aren't very active in Brazil. Eco Patrol a little bit more than YPF. Um, but I, you know, I think the silver lining is since Lula's last term, there have been changes in regulations uh, in Brazil that make it harder for him to interfere. Petrobras has also sold a lot of assets, so he doesn't it doesn't have the same impact on the Brazilian economy that it did back in the in the early 2000s. Looking at the stock for Petrobras, boy, the last trailing 12 months up 90 percent uh, up like a lot of other big oil companies. So uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. And real quickly, 10 seconds. World Cup coming up in a few weeks. Are you just picking Brazil? I mean, I have to, but I'll also <laughs> say my Brazilian team, Flamengo, won the South American Championship. So go Flamengo. Oh, good stuff there. All right, we got the World Cup. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be into the World Cup this year. I'm going to force myself to watch a lot of those. And my sleeper pick, hmm. Netherlands. Wow. How about that? Mine too now, I just decided. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So we'll see that. All right, good stuff there. Fernando Valle, he covers all things global energy. Uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he's been doing it for decades. We really appreciate getting his global perspective here on this global market. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Katie, you know how much I love logistics. So I want to get right to our next guest, Drew Wilkerson. He's the CEO of RxO. He's currently XBO's president of North American Transportation. He will become chief executive officer of the company's planned spinoff of its tech-enabled brokered services platform, RxO. XBO, the big logistics company, uh, reported some numbers today, some better than expected EPS uh, stock up about 5% today. Drew, thanks so much for joining us. Give us the highlights uh, from your earnings. I mean, I, I want to talk supply chain and, and logistics and things like that, but your numbers tell me that maybe things are getting a little bit better out there. Yeah, Paul, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here with you. Um, when you look at what we did this quarter as a company at XPO, we grew revenue 
three billion of revenue, which was up three percent. Our highest third quarter with adjusted EBITDA in the company's history of three hundred fifty-two million. We had solid operating leverage. When you look at the part of the business that I oversee, that will be RxO as of tomorrow morning, um, we saw strong volume growth. So volume was up for us 9% on a year-over-year basis. It was the most amount of volume that we've ever moved in a quarter. And we did this, and we did this with strong profits. We operated at a gross profit percentage of 19%, and we grew our overall gross profit dollars by 31% on a year-over-year basis. So it was a great quarter for XPO, and it's a great time for us to be spinning out as RxO with a ton of momentum at our back. Well, tell us a little bit about the spinoff uh, expected tomorrow. So what is the thinking behind that? Obviously, like you said, uh, it's a great time to spin off. Uh, how long has this been in the works? It's been in the works. We announced it in March of this year that we were looking to spin it off. And this is the second spinoff we've done. We did one last year with our contract logistics business, which is GXO. So we're keeping a lot of X and O's in the family. But with, with, with this business that is spinning off tomorrow, it is our tech-enabled truck brokerage platform. We're the fourth largest truckload broker in the country. And if you look over the last eight years from 2013 through 2021, the brokerage grew at a phenomenal rate. It grew at over a 9% CAGR. During that same time period, we grew at over a 27% CAGR. And that's nearly three times what the industry is growing at. It's because of our investment in technology. We've got a first mover advantage in technology. We've been investing into it for over a decade. And this allowed us to outperform the market and take share profitably. All right, Drew. Uh, Amy Mars, one of our top, top reporters at Bloomberg Radio. She was also a graduate of the University of South Carolina. So maybe you guys can no commit. Exactly. Big game. Who are you playing? We just lost to Missouri, but we're playing Vanderbilt. So hopefully. We'll oh, yeah, that'll be a, that, that should be W. All right, Drew, I started my career covering the, 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 the trucking stocks, took a bunch of them public back in the day. So I, I think I kind of know about the trucking business. I know how important it is to the U.S. economy. I'd love to get your view of kind of where we are in this whole supply chain snarl, if you will, that we've been dealing with since the pandemic. From your perspective, kind of where are we now and, 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 and how close are we to maybe getting things back to quasi-normal? The last several years, there's been a lot of chaos in the transportation market. And for us, you know, volatility is not a bad thing. And customers lean into us when, when there's volatile times. Volatile times means that the market could be, the load to truck ratio could be tight or it could be loose. We have seen the truckload market loosen over the last six to eight months. And, you know, we're operating at strong margins within that of the third quarter operating at 19% gross profit dollars. Okay, so as you've mentioned, the market has loosened uh, quite substantially. What do you see as the biggest risk at this point? When you look uh, overall at volume, we're seeing different things from different customers. You know, some of our retail and e-commerce customers as a whole, that vertical is down for us on a year-over-year basis. But what we're hearing from our other customers is a, is a really good story overall. Pretty much all of our other verticals are up on a year-over-year basis in terms of volume. And as we look out, customers are going to continue to come to RxO for two reasons. One, they're going to come to us because we provide the best service and solutions with technology that gives them complete visibility of what's going on for the life of a shipment. And then two, they're going to continue to look in who the leaders are within the market. 
And RxO has established itself as a, one of the transportation leaders growing three times than the industry's grown over the last eight years. And Drew, ever since I followed the trucking business now more than 30 years, it's been a labor shortage that, you know, the near 100% turnover in the trucking industry. And I'm guessing it's, it's no different today. Maybe the pandemic's made it even worse. How do you guys deal with that? Well, first, we love the carriers that we that we work with. This yep. quarter, we actually added 10,000 carriers to our, our RxO Connect platform. So to your point, there's definitely been a, a turnover in the driver industry, but carriers, like just like customers, are coming to do business with RxO. We have so much volume that they don't have to leave the system to find their next load. We also do a rewards program that gives them discounts on things that matter to drivers most, things like fuel, tire, roadside maintenance. And we've got a system that is so easy for them to use that they can pick up their cell phone, they can book a load, they can negotiate. They do all of that with no interaction. So you know, we've had great success with, with the carrier base. We've got over 100,000 carriers in our RxO Connect platform. We've got access to a million and a half trucks. So we have massive amounts of capacity and a, a, a long runway to continue that growth. All right, so you guys spin out tomorrow, right, Drew? We spin out tomorrow. We, we, we will be ringing the bell at 930 in the morning. All right. RxO is a symbol. Is that right? RxO is the symbol. All right. That's good. It's we trading on a one-issued basis right now. So you put that into your Bloomberg terminal, RxO. Uh, you'll get that business. Again, being spun off from XBO tomorrow. Standalone business. Drew Wilkerson, CEO of RxO. Uh, talking to us about the logistics business, the supply chain, all things that moves goods across this country. You know, we now have a little bit of perspective here on the changes that took place in China over the last month or so with President Xi getting another five-year term and a little bit of perspective here. And I need a complete reset of how I should think about it and maybe the markets and investors should think about it. And for that, we turn to Leland Miller. He's the CEO of the China Beige Book International. And folks, the China Beige Book International, these folks, these folks, they get their own data. They have boots on the ground. They, you know, so they don't rely on the government or anything like that. They have really, really, f f you know, amazing uh, granular data, and it gives them some pretty good insights. So, Leland, thanks so much for joining us here. I mean, what is your perspective? What are you telling your clients about China over the next five years? What should we expect? Much lower growth. Uh, you know, there, yep. there, there's two there, there's two different dynamics that are going on right now. One structural and one cyclical, and people are getting them very mixed up. Uh, cyclically, we have COVID zero that has been crushing demand, hurting supply, crushing demand, and just causing havoc throughout 2022, but, it, but really for several years now. But the bigger, the bigger issue, at least it will be the bigger issue for China in the long term, is the structural slowdown of the economy. This is the diminishment of the property sector as a key growth driver. This is less credit going into, you know, reckless credit expansion to, to zombie companies. Uh, all this is happening a lot less, and we're going to see a much more precipitous slowdown over the coming years. That, that said, you know, right now you've got particularly smothered growth because of COVID zero. So you have the potential for little bounce ups along the way. But structurally, we're going much, much slower. So, Leland, on the topic of COVID zero, you know, covering the movements in uh, Chinese stock markets last week just absolutely crushed after uh, Xi Jinping stacked his leadership ranks with loyalists. The explanation there was that we're probably going to get a continuation of these COVID zero policies. Does that narrative hold water with you when you just think about the really brutal 
asset reaction. Yeah, it does. But I think it's, it's even more than that. I think we're going to get a continuation of not just COVID zero, but all of the she policies that investors have come to really, really dislike. You know, what we kept hearing for the past year or so was that just wait, just wait. 2021 is an anomaly. We'll wait for 2022. It's a party Congress year. Oh, wait, 2022 is not doing too well. Wait to the party Congress. And I think what the party Congress was, was just the last straw where the bull argument on China having some policy pivot on growth, on stimulus, on COVID zero, it just blew apart. And that's why you saw market-wide surrender across the board on Chinese assets. Leland, if I'm a CEO of a U.S. domiciled global corporation, can I allocate capital to China? Can I invest in China? Can I bank on China for the next five years or 10 years? Well, you have to be really careful. Uh, you know, so much money went into this for decades, which very little thought. The idea there's, you know, over a billion consumers, they'll just start buying stuff. And even if they won't, my board is forcing me to go into China. So let's just do this. I think at this point, there are opportunities in China, sure, but you have to evaluate the, the conditions on the ground much differently. You're not going to have the wild upside uh, that a lot of people thought. Uh, you're not going to have a lot of sectors that are going to be kept uh, bolstered because of credit. You're not going to have, uh, you know, you're not going to have this, this robust consumer economy that people thought. So you sure, there, there are opportunities to, if you pick your sectors right, to make some money. But, uh, but really, you have to think this through because this is not an automatic uh, you no. know, victory story. And conversely, Leland, if I'm President Xi and I have my, one of my stated goals is to be a world leader, not participate in the world, but be a leader, can he achieve that if he has kind of a China first, inward looking, not non-engagement type of mentality? Well, you know, probably not, but he sure thinks he can. And I think the, the, the mindset from, from, the, from Xi and the rest of the top leadership is we have to get China prepared for leadership. And that means not just juicing growth, not, not you know, default to the old playbook. We need to have much more self-reliance. We need to sever our connections on the technology side as much as possible with the West so that we're not going to be, be caught through some, you know, export control disaster. So a lot of what they think they need to do is just necessary pain. And everyone thought, oh, it's just a matter of months before, you know, he, he flips his fingers and his pain point has been reached and he reverses course. That is not going to happen. And so, Leland, really quickly, about 30 seconds here, this potential structural slowdown in Chinese growth, what does that mean for the rest of emerging markets and for the world at large? Well, what it means is that, is that China can get through this. If they do all the things right, they can get this, through this okay and have a, have a stronger, albeit slower, economy. But all the countries around the world that think that China is going to be producing these large levels of growth, big infrastructure, de endless demand for commodities, they're in real trouble if they haven't been diversifying. And most of these countries have not been over the past several years. Ten seconds, Leland. Are you a bull or bear on China next five years? Well, I, I, I'm a bull because I think she is doing some of the structural stuff necessary in order to turn around the economy. But... <laughs> It doesn't mean there's going to be high levels of growth. And I think that's the first thing investors should take mm. away from this. Yeah, good stuff. All right, Leland, thanks so much for taking the time. We always appreciate getting your uh, informed perspective uh, on China. Some, yeah, I don't, I guess it wasn't change. I guess it was a continuation of the existing policy. But uh, it'd be interesting to see how China evolves over the next uh, five years as a global player. Leland Miller, uh, China Beige Book International. Today's big take story is a 
big one. Uh, we want to get right to it. And, of course, you can listen to the Big Take podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple, and anywhere else you get your podcasts and listen to the Big Take every night at 11 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And today's is a big one. Kelsey Butler joins us, and along with Patricia uh, Hurtado. Uh, Kelsey reported on an amazing story here. The U.S. Supreme Court is considering a radical overhaul of the college admissions process that would alter the country's most elite institutions and workplaces. We're talking about affirmative action. Kelsey, thanks so much for joining us here. Exactly what is the court, what's on the court's docket this uh, term here? Sure. So right now there are two cases uh, that are currently before the court. And um, just given the makeup of the court, what our reporting is telling us and the um, kind of conservative bent of the court it's very likely um, that affirmative action, as we know, it could go to, go away, which means that schools, both public and private uh, universities that are that it is, uh, will no longer be able to consider race as part of the admissions process when they're deciding who to allow into their schools. And Kelsey, walk us through the potential ramifications there. One of the first lines in your story, you write that when the practice ended in California, the state's most selective campuses saw minority enrollment drop by more than 50%. Is that a blueprint for what could be to come? Certainly. We've seen affirmative action um, in college admissions go away in, um, you know, across the country. Right now, it's not allowed in nine states. And in those states, there's been a ton of research that really has shown that immediate drop off. California is one example. Michigan is another. Um, Minorities, specifically black, Native American um, students had a huge drop off in the most selective uh, institutions. And they really haven't caught up. And we're talking about more than a decade in some of those places. How long long has affirmative action been around? It just seems like it's always been around, but I just I don't know when it really came about. So it's been around since the civil rights era. Um, The first time that the Supreme Court weighed in on affirmative action was in the 70s, and it kind of uh, set a blueprint for the way uh, race is considered in the college admissions process, which means there's no such thing as a quota. Um, It's just part of the holistic picture that an admissions office kind of uh, looks at when they are deciding who to admit. Uh, Again, in those states where it's allowed, uh, as I mentioned, nine, it is banned. And Kelsey, I mean, given that long history, uh, how long we've known affirmative action in the U.S., why now? Why is this being considered now? Um, So there is a special interest group that has kind of um, championed this issue, uh, and uh, they are kind of bringing this issue up before the court. Uh, They are arguing that uh, the practice discriminates against Asian American students and Uh, essentially keeps them out of these elite institutions. And uh, now really is the time that uh, they've been able to kind of uh, bring this back up again. I will say, though, uh, affirmative action has been something that has come up before the Supreme Court many, many times. Um, And so this is looking like the time it might go away, but it's been uh, decided and affirmed by the court uh, several times over. Like, as it relates to higher education, is this just for public universities or would it also apply to private universities? So because the the two cases that are before the court, one is a private school, Harvard, you may have heard of it. Um, The (laughs) other is a public institution. Um, It could very well have an impact on both uh, types of institutions. What are are we hearing from corporate America? Have they kind of weighed in here on kind of what they'd like to see or the ramifications? 
Certainly. I think one really interesting thing in my reporting was reading through a lot of the court briefs, um, the arguments for um, and against this. Um, and there was one brief in um, one of the uh, court cases, a whole host of companies, including Google, General Electric, JetBlue, um, basically said this is important for them and said that they, without affirmative action, they will lose access to a pipeline of highly qualified future workers. And it's going to make them harder for them to hit diversity goals and targets that they have for their own organizations. And Kelsey, walk us through the timeline here. What are the uh, you know potential milestones to watch as this story develops? Certainly. So arguments are happening uh, this week. Uh, our reporters are going to be following it closely and highlighting um, you know all the big kind of moments in those arguments. The Supreme Court likely won't make a decision until next year, so we'll certainly be following that. And then we'll see the impact in the schools in the year or two years to come, because obviously we know admissions decisions are a little bit on a lag. Uh, so we'll start seeing it in um, freshman classes thereafter. And and does this affirmative action issue, does it affect, does it apply to companies or are they just kind of keeping the scope to colleges and universities? Well, what could happen is, you know, as I mentioned, companies will be impacted because of the uh, basically what the cohort of elite uh, institutions is going to look like as far as their student bodies. And it could open the door to um, companies being hamstrung in the way that they make hiring decisions as well. And so, I mean, Paul asked a little bit about what corporate America's response has been. Outside of corporate America, I mean, are there any groups leading a pushback effort here? What does that effort look like? We've seen in um, places like California, um, there have been kind of community organization activist groups that have tried to push back on uh, these types of things. Not too long ago, there was a, um, a ballot measure um, to try to bring affirmative action back in the state, and it actually didn't pass. So uh, it's still banned uh, in the state of California. There's certainly been kind of this uh, this movement to try to bring it back in some places. But, um, you know, it's mm. certainly, as I mentioned, there's a lot of misconceptions about it. So sometimes it's not as popular with people as uh, one might think. Yep. Interesting story. Uh, as always, the big take story is always uh, kind of tackle the big issues. Kelsey Butler, uh, equality reporter for Bloomberg News with a big take story here. Uh, you can listen to the big take podcast on iHeartRadio app, uh, Apple and anywhere else you get your podcast and listen to the big take every night at 11 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.